going to begin by reading the first eight verses. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. The Bible says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and yet they are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's say a prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for today. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together for this time of worship and praise. And now, Lord, as we enter into a study of your word, dear God, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, Father. We pray, dear Lord, that we would receive your word, dear God, and that, Father, it would build us up and draw us closer to you. Lord God, be with me as I speak, Father. Father, get, I'm just not sufficient, Lord, to, to, to deliver your words, your message, Father. But I pray for your grace and your strength. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, throughout <clears throat> Matthew's gospel, uh, we see glimpses of Jesus' divine authority. Uh, he's either proclaiming his authority or he's demonstrating his authority uh, in one way or another. Uh, just for instance, in chapter 7 and verse 29, uh, after the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew and the people said he was teaching them as one who has authority and not as the scribes. And then in chapter 8 and verse 27, uh, when he's with his disciples out on the Sea of Galilee and he calms the, the, the storm that was out there, his disciples proclaimed, even the winds and the sea obey him. In chapter 9 and verse 8, uh, Jesus even said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Uh, Luke talked about this last week. In chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And then finally, uh, after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus proclaimed, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so all through Matthew, we are just given these glimpses and these uh, little signs of Jesus' divine authority, the, the authority given to him by his heavenly Father. Now, the religious leaders, that is, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, uh, they would challenge uh, his authority uh, really in an effort to diminish his influence. You know, uh, one thing about it, we know uh, that if nothing else, they were kind of envious of Jesus and the influence that he was, uh, that he was really drawing to himself. Uh, you remember uh, even Pilate, when Pilate was trying him, he recognized that it was for envy that they had delivered Jesus over to him. You see, they wanted to be the ones in charge. They wanted to cling to their preeminence within the Jewish community. 
And I think we see an example of this even here in these passages in chapter 1, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. And so they challenged Jesus, saying, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, we need to understand that there were uh, three uh, highly sacred institutions uh, within the Jewish community. These were the holy grails, if you will, of the Jewish people, some things that really set them apart from the nations, from everyone else. They were the Sabbath, the temple, and then circumcision. And over and over, it seems like, the, like Jesus clashes with the religious leaders over these uh, items, especially two of them, uh, the Sabbath and the temple. And that's what we see here in chapter 12. And so when they question Jesus about his supposed violation of the Sabbath law, he reminds them about a bit of Jewish history that's recorded in 1 Samuel, the 21st chapter. Now, in that account, uh, David and his men, they were kind of on the run from Saul. You remember back then that Samuel had already anointed, anointed David uh, as the next king over the nation of Israel. And, you know, Saul, he also was kind of uh, envious and jealous over David. And so he really wanted to get rid of David. And so we see David now and his men kind of as, as fugitives uh, in Israel, uh, going from place to place, trying to stay one step ahead of Saul. So David and his men, they, they show up hungry at the house of God in Shiloh. And because there's nothing else there to eat available, the priests gave them the holy bread that only the priests were permitted to eat. Now, in the house of God, there will be 12 loaves placed on a table, and every day those 12 loaves were changed out, and fresh ones would be put there. And only the priests and their family were able to eat those 12 loaves that were taken off the table uh, from the previous day. But in this particular case, uh, the priest gives David and his men those 12 loaves. Now, what's significant about this account, first of all, is it may be that the priests recognized David as the Lord's anointed king of Israel. Perhaps he saw in David that, okay, this is the next king of Israel, and because he's the king, he's going to make an exception for David and for his men. You know, I kind of compare it something like, you know, I remember uh, back in Kansas City when I was, used to work at the airport, and the president would come into the airport, and uh, his airplane would sit there, and then he would, uh, you know, have a processional go into the city where he would accomplish his work for the day. And, you know, when he did that, they would close off all the freeway exits for the president to, to drive through, for him to come through on the highway. Now, you know, that's not right. Nobody can just close down the highway. The highway's for everybody. I mean, we paid for those highways, right? But an exception was made because this was the president. We're going to close off the highway so the president can come through. And, and I, th I think it's kind of the same situation here where the priest said, okay, this is the Lord's anointed, and so we can make an exception for him. We can give him this holy bread, which is only normally allowed for the priest and for his family. But perhaps just as importantly, it is that the priest is showing compassion for this group of men that are hungry. And so he sets aside the law to fulfill a human need. And so why would Jesus bring this particular story up uh, to the Pharisees at this time? Well, you know, David 
was the most powerful and the most revered king in Israel's history. The Pharisees would never have challenged the... Uh, they would have been familiar with the story of uh, David, first of all, uh, and yet they would never challenge or question David's actions in eating the holy bread because of his legacy. And by citing this story, I think Jesus is in effect saying that, you know what, I'm a king on par with David. And my followers, if they're hungry, an exception can be made just as it was for David, even on the Sabbath. But you know, Jesus doesn't just leave it at that. He continues his defense to the Pharisees by citing the priests. You know, the priests, their work in the temple is continuous even on the Sabbath day. The temple was considered the dwelling place of God himself. And no one questioned or challenged the priests as they went about their duties, even on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus proclaimed that something greater than the temple is here. He was speaking about himself. Jesus was the embodiment of everything that the temple stood for as he possessed the very Spirit of God. He had God-given authority over the temple, and not just the temple, but as he proclaimed in verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority not only over the temple, but over the Sabbath as well. So Jesus proclaims his lordship, his authority over two of their most sacred institutions the temple, and the Sabbath. Well, let's continue on. In verse 9 through 14, the Bible says, He went on from there, and he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And so, so that they might accuse him. Well, Jesus said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees posed another question, hoping to get Jesus to incriminate himself, asking is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, I think their question shows just how different their views and how different their interpretation concerning the Sabbath law were from God's actual intent of what the Sabbath meant and what it stood for. You see, the Sabbath law is given back in Exodus, the 20th chapter. Now, the Sabbath was to be a holy day unto the Lord. It was intended to be a time of rest and a time of communion with God. But it was also a demonstration of God's mercy. You see, the Sabbath provided a mandatory time of rest for servants and also for work animals, along with everyone within the nation of Israel. You know, this was God's goodness on display toward his people. But then in an effort to place strict parameters and definitions on what constituted work, the elders of Israel added numerous guidelines and restrictions to the Sabbath law. Things like you could only lift a certain amount of weight on the Sabbath. You could only walk a certain number of steps. You could only write a certain number of words on the Sabbath. And so with all of that, the Sabbath law became restrictive to the point of being burdensome to the people. Yet Jesus said in Mark's account that the Sabbath 
was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. They had taken something that God intended to be a blessing and turned it into a burden for the Jewish people. And so Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. If you have a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, won't you work to get it out of there? And the answer is rhetorical. Of course they would. And so what's the lesson? The lesson is, as Jesus says, people are more important. People are more valuable than sheep. And if it's okay to rescue a sheep on the Sabbath, then so much more is it okay to bring help and healing and blessing to people regardless of what day it is. As Jesus said, it is lawful to do good even on the Sabbath day. And so it's after Jesus heals this man with a withered hand that Matthew says in verse 14, the Pharisees began to plot how they might destroy him. Jesus has now challenged their views of two of their most sacred institutions, and so now they're coming after him. And so in verses 15 through 21, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Matthew, in his gospel, he sees these events in Jesus' ministry as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus is the ser chosen servant of God. He is beloved or loved by God, and God places his spirit upon him. This is Jesus' badge of authority. He possesses the Spirit of God in full measure. And with that authority, he brings justice, not just punishment to those who are doing wrong, but justice in that he is setting things right, healing the sick, lifting the oppressed, binding up the brokenhearted, bringing justice. It's common for kings to come into power by violence and by war, by eliminating any challenges to their authority by demanding that everybody bow down and showing wrath to anyone who doesn't bow down to them. But not Jesus. That's not the way he comes into authority. Isaiah says he doesn't cry aloud. In other words, there's no fanfare. Matter of fact, Jesus even asks his people that he heals, don't tell anyone. But he quietly goes about, goes about his business of doing good. Jesus doesn't break or trample underfoot the bruised plant, nor does he stuff out the candle that's barely burning. No, instead, Jesus binds up the wounded, heals the sick, restores the outcast, shows compassion toward the oppressed. Jesus brings justice to victory. He brings hope to the nations. Such a fitting description of the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with three takeaways, 
from these verses, the three things that we can learn and also some things that we can look out for as we look through these particular passages. First of all, the Jews of Jesus' day had a tendency to be very religious. You know, they were diligent in things like their observance of the Sabbath, of offering their sacrifices and temple worship. And yet it was often at the expense of their relationship with God. Notice that religion and relationship are not one and the same. You know, a person can be very religious in something without loving it or having a loving relationship toward it. We can religiously go to work day after day, doing our job day after day, and yet come home and say, man, I hate my job. And so religion and relationship are two very different things. Religion is simply doing the same thing on a regular basis, in and out, day after day. Note what Isaiah said about the religion of the Jewish people back in Isaiah chapter 1. God said through Isaiah, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. God said to them, look, I don't want that stuff anymore, even though these were the things that he had given them in the law as items of worship. He said, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why is God saying that to, this, to his people? Notice what he says. He says, because your hands are full of blood. He said, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Seek to, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. God had grown weary of their religion. He had grown weary of their sacrifices, their observances of the feasts and all of the Sabbaths and all of those things because even though they were doing those things that he had prescribed, yet they had not drawn near to him by living the life that he prescribed for them. Religion can be fine. Religion can be a good thing. And beloved, let me tell you, we can fall into the same trap as the ancient Israelites were. Attending service every week, taking communion, singing religiously, all of those things are good, but failing to carry our worship into our everyday lives through a holy lifestyle and a love for our fellow man then it just becomes religion without relationship with the one who gives us those things. James says it this way in James chapter 1, 26 and 27. He said, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Notice now James applies it specifically to sins of the tongue, if you will. In other words, uh, gossip and lies and slander. Uh, backbiting, complaining, things of that nature. James says, look, if, you know, we can have religion, but if we have religion and we fail to bridle our tongue, fail to control how we act and think and talk to people, 
He said that religion is worthless. He says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Notice how similar that is to uh, God speaking to the children of uh, Israel through Isaiah. That's all what God wanted. Yeah, you know, the Sabbaths and the feasts and all of those things, the prayers, those were good. But God says, no, you know what? You need to cease to do evil and learn to do good. Draw near to God in relationship with him and not just religion. Secondly, this morning, you know, the Pharisees had a problem with legalism. And again, this can be a trap for us as well. You know, legalism, very simply described, is overly strict adherence to the law or to a religious code. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. Uh, you know, we want to obey God and we want to obey the Word of God and do what the Lord says. Obedience is a good thing. Obedience is a necessary thing. But legalism, by contrast, is an attitude that is rooted in human pride. Legalism is an attitude that says, because I do everything exactly right, I'm responsible for my salvation. And thus we nullify grace because it's all about me and what I do and how well I do it. We can sometimes get, caught, get so caught up in the details, mechanics, and minutia of Scripture, much like the Pharisees in the Sabbath, and in doing so, we fail to make proper, proper application of how Scripture should change our hearts and change our lives. Notice, make sure we notice and understand what Paul said about grace in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He said, for by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because we do everything right, that's not where our salvation is rooted. It's not as a result of our works but it's by the grace of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a classic example of legalism and how it's often misapplied and used in Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. I'm sure we all remember this passage. It says, uh, the Hebrew writer says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Somehow, we drew from that passage that uh, we're not supposed to miss church, never for anything. And so, basically, that passage has kind of been used as a licking stick, so to speak. If you miss church for any reason, to spend the Sunday with your family, or to tend to a sick family member, or whatever the case may be, oh, you missed church last Sunday, you need to come up before the church and make a confession. And that's not at all what the Hebrew writer is talking about. When we understand that our salvation is by the grace of God through Jesus and his work at Calvary, not because we earn it through strict adherence to law, then we're free to obey God from the heart because of our love for him and because of what he's done for us. The Hebrew writer, when he wrote that passage, once again, he gives us a gift, much like the Sabbath. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And by meeting together, 
It's an opportunity for us to encourage one another, stir one another up, and lift one another up. Yet legalism has taken that passage and make it, made it into this strict command where now it becomes burdensome. Finally this morning, in this passage, Jesus shows us where the heart of God is. In other words, what's most important to him? The Pharisees thought that the most important thing was to do the rituals and do them right. But Jesus showed them, and he shows us today, that to demonstrate mercy and compassion for the hurting, the outcast, the poor, and the marginalized of this world is of greater concern to God. You remember Jesus quoted Hosea in chapter 6, verse 6, saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Once again, it's not that worship isn't necessary, praise isn't, or that praise isn't good, but Jesus first and foremost desires mercy, compassion, love for him and our fellow man above the rituals and sacrifices. No matter how much churchy religious stuff we do, if we don't bring the light and the love of Jesus to the world around us, are we really fulfilling true discipleship? One of the components of our vision here at Irving is we want to be a church that brings Jesus to this community and to this world, not just through preaching, but through service. We want to continue to think about ways to do that collectively as a church, but it must also be who we are as individual disciples of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's who Jesus wants us to be, a people who serves others and serves our community in such a way that they see Jesus Christ in us. Let me close with this little story. Years ago, we were back in Kansas City, and uh, I had to ask Martha about this to make sure I got it right. But years ago, back in Kansas City, uh, it was one Sunday afternoon, we were coming back from uh, worship service. I think back then we had an afternoon service or Bible study or whatever. And on the way back, uh, there was an accident. This one car ran the uh, red light and another car T-boned him. And there was a big crash. The guy who had ran the light was intoxicated and he had been injured. I remember he got out of the car and he was bleeding from his head and, you know, he was disoriented and everything from the crash, I guess, and from being intoxicated as well. And uh, Martha and I stopped and we uh, got out and we uh, helped him get back into the car and Martha put something over his head to kind of hold the bleeding and until we got the police came and all of that. But the guy in the other car... He got out of his car, and he had his suit on, and he was complaining, oh, no, I'm going to be late for church. I'm going to miss church. He wasn't concerned about the man who was bleeding in the other car. He was only concerned about the fact that he was going to miss the worship service. And 
I thought about that account when I had this lesson. Yeah, worship is good. And it's good for us to be here. It's good for us to come together. But let's think about and remember what's really important to God. In this story, we see the merciful authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus brought authority, but Jesus also brought compassion and mercy. The lesson is yours this morning. Thank you so much.